0: cycling a history of our wonderful sport for the discerning listener in 1993 lance armstrong did not become the youngest ever world champion when he won the elite men's road race in oslo armstrong was still just 21 years old when he crossed the line solo in the driving rain despite the fact that he is very often described as the youngest winner of the world's road race there were in fact two riders who won the rainbow jersey when they were younger than armstrong the first was carol cares who was just 20 years and 2 months old Cares was primarily a track cyclist, but on a favourable course in Leipzig in 1934, Cares used his considerable power to win the world's road race at his very first attempt. He would go on to become national road race champion, and later in 1939, he would win the Tour of Flanders. But the other world champion, who was younger than Armstrong, has perhaps the more interesting story. Jean-Pierre Montserrat was just three days younger than Armstrong when he won the rainbow jersey in Leicester in 1970. His victory was made all the more remarkable by the strength of his Belgian teammates, whom he outshone on the day. Hermann van Springel, Walter Goderfrut, Frans Verbeek, Roger de Vlaminck and Eddie Merckx were all riding for Belgium that day. But Montserrat wasn't waiting around for anyone. He was in the thick of the action all day, making it into the seven-man move after just seven of 18 laps, some of which would eventually make it to the finish together. The race came down to a tactical man between four of those seven riders, but Monster decided he wasn't waiting around as he jumped away in the final kilometre to cross the line with a couple of seconds to spare. He said after the race, I have never ridden with such ease. Before, I have always been the victim of my own lack of confidence, but this time it was different. I thought I'd win the sprint anyway, but I jumped clear because I knew that the others were coming up on us. Now, I can't believe I've won. Although Montserrat was a teammate, Merckx, the pre-race favourite, had kind words for his young challenger. He rode a great race and I'm pleased for him. It's no easy job to be always in the break like he was. I couldn't have won today. Everyone was watching me too closely and the conditions weren't hard enough to get away. Montserrat would go on to win the Vuelta a Andaluthia the following year while wearing the rainbow jersey. But a week later, when riding in the grote Yarmax Priests race, Montserrat was riding second wheel in a breakaway group of 16 riders when a car entered the race route driving in the opposite direction. Despite repeated requests to pull in, the driver took no heed. The lead rider managed to swerve out of the way, but Montserrat didn't see the car until it was too late. He was hit and was killed. He was survived by his wife Annie and their two-year-old son.
1: Welcome to this episode twenty-three
0: of this week in cycling
1: history, and uh, you couldn't resist it, Kelly. Bloody Lance Armstrong in the first story this week. What are you doing, man?
0: Yeah, sorry about that. Although it's not really about Lance Armstrong, it's um, it's just it's just one of these things that that has become true over the last number of years, and it's just a, it's a big pet peeve of mine. And like, you know, like I I I even was reading an article. Um, Recently, just doing a bit of background reading on the whole Armstrong thing, and there was an, an article on Cycling News, and I had a few co- quotes from Pat McQuaid, um, a couple of years ago, and he even he was saying it, you know, oh, and Armstrong was this and that, and he was the youngest ever champion, world champion, and uh, I found an I found an article that Paul Kimmage had written, and he said it, and um, it's just uh, I'd say I'd say after the whole Bernardino riding Parry roubaix story, it's probably one of the most. Yeah, thanks for that one, mate. Uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> guilty. Uh, it's probably one of the most oft-repeated incorrect things about cycling that that does the rounds. And I, I just it, it reminded me of this story that I I read. Um, there was this just to go off on a tangent slightly. There was this um, uh, famous composer. His name was Maurice Jarre. He he was a film composer, and um, I think he was most famous for doing the score for Gorillas in the Mist. Mm-hmm. And um, he died a, a couple of years ago. A few it might have been three or four years ago. And um, just as an experiment, there was this journalist, journalism student from Dublin, who uh, he did this on purpose. Very, very shortly after he died, he went on to, like, within a matter of of an hour or so, when he found out, he went on to Wikipedia and he added this quote to Maurice Jarre's Wikipedia page um you know and and did did all the things you're supposed to do like proper references and and links and all that kind of thing and he put on this quote that was really kind of appropriate for this guy's death and but it was a quote from apparently you know by the composer himself and it was something like you know when i die there will be a final waltz playing in my head or you know so, something along those lines and uh, just like within within the day it, it appeared in like the Guardian, the Sydney Morning Herald, you know all these big, big publications, and it was everywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, you, you know he, he was um, eventually he came clean and he admitted it. I, I don't know where he admitted it, whether it was just in the Wikipedia chat function or whatever. But he he came clean. But he kind of said, if I hadn't have come clean, you know this would have become true. Once you know he said, once anything is printed enough times in the media without challenge, it becomes fact. And you know that's that's become more and more a problem w- with the internet. You know, it's just it 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 spreads, especially with Twitter. And you know, you have people throwing out quotes and facts, and, and nobody really checks the primary source anymore. No, well,
1: I mean, it, I remember the close masks were uh, quoted by I think uh, Lamond or um, yeah, or, or Laquie even was it? Le Keep, yeah, right, you're right. So, the age of fact checking, because people are in such a rush to get stuff out um, I think has killed, you know, it's is dead, there is no fact checking anymore, people just take stuff as gospel
0: Yeah, from Wikipedia, so I mean I you know, I, I kind of have my gripes about Wikipedia, but I do take facts from Wikipedia, you know, particularly like you know, kind of mundane stuff, like people's ages and, and, and that kind of thing and uh, yeah, I suppose it's just just easier and you just kind of assume that these things are correct, but Wikipedia is, you know I remember being in college, and, and you, you had to cite sources. And at the time, Wikipedia wasn't banned as a as a site sourcing, uh, as a, as a source. And um, you could just you could literally go onto Wikipedia, change whatever you were looking at to what you wanted, <laughs> cite it, and and cite the date and time. And that, you know you got away with it. And I mean, it's just ridiculous. Anyway, that, anyway, that,
1: enough of this commentary on modern society. Sorry, Let's, I'm, I'm pulling you back to cycling here. Um, sorry. This this look uh, he. I mean, there's there's echoes of Pantani in you know, a smashing his leg when a, a car came into the race, um, but for for a world champion to die, is I mean that's the ultimate curse of the rainbow jersey, isn't it?
0: Yeah, like I, you know, um, I suppose the, the images of of, of Johnny Hoogerland come to mind uh, w- would be the most recent incident when a cyclist got hit by a car, at, at least a major one, and um, but I suppose it's always a worry uh you know maybe obviously not so much now with major races in, in like the world championships but in local races you know you still have races run on roads um that aren't closed and uh you know there's there's egypts on the road all the time and this is what you're dealing with you can put out as many race marshals as you want but all it takes is one person to to not know what they're doing or to look at their phone at the wrong time and 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 this is the danger that they're facing. And and yeah, for the for this guy to have been k- killed in a race is uh, is really tragic. And actually, to add to the tragedy, his, his I said in the piece he was survived by a two-year-old son. Five years later, his son was also killed by a car when out riding his bike, which is just an unbelievably unfortunate thing to happen. And um, you know, you mentioned the curse of the rainbow jersey. I I know I know it kind of gets overused, I'd say. But uh, yeah, this I mean. This really was incredibly unfortunate. You know, He didn't really get to ride in the rainbow jersey that much at all. And then for, for his life to be cut short when he was so young, I mean, he was still only, was he, 22? 20, 22, 22 when he was killed,
1: yeah. I mean, it's funny, yeah. my dad used to, my mum and dad, I mean, my dad's dead now, but they used to spend six months of the year in Spain. And I, I remember him telling me a story, I think it was down in Magaluf, um, where a car had tried to come onto the course of the, the Vuelta and it took two policemen actually unholstering their guns to get the guy to stop. So I don't think, I mean, human stupidity has tragic consequences because you've got cars and bikes at very high speed. You know, it's not a good mixture, whether it's somebody who stopped too quickly over the finish line and a rider goes through the back window. Um, I'm I'm genuinely saddened. I mean, this is years ago that this happened, and reading this, I, I had a tear in my
0: eye. Yeah. Yeah, it's really and like I said, it's still a problem. It just just coming to mind, just just there. I think it happened in the Ross a couple of years ago. A van got on and and started driving around the way. You know, it, and it can easily happen. I I think what happened in the Ross was that um you know there, there was marshals placed on all the major junctions along the route, and and that's pretty much all they can do. But the van or maybe it was a tractor or some kind of farm vehicle just pulled out of a field. Mm-hmm. You know that, that wasn't being monitored, and you know sure your man didn't didn't know. That he was pulling out in the middle of a race because there was no marshall so it, it can easily happen by accident but um just going back to the the actual race itself like uh, i i just thought it was amazing that you know in in the 70s when there were so many prominent belgians and like i said in the in the thing you know all of these belgians were you know obviously teammates and for for him to have won that race i thought was just an amazing feat and uh um, he he actually he won the Tour of Lombardy as well the year before in 1969 he won uh, he he won the Tour of Lombardy and uh, th- that's actually just to, to go on a slight tangent again that was a, a an interesting race because um, uh, it was actually won by a guy called Gerben Karstens who's a Dutch guy mm-hmm. he's kind of you don't really hear much about him but he anyway he won the Tour of Lombardy and he got he got disqualified for failing a dope test so the the victory got awarded to Montserrat and. Uh, Ger- Gerben Carstens, he, he also he also got disqualified for after winning the Paris Tours race in 1974, and I'm, I'm pretty sure he's the only rider to have lost two classics b- b- due to a disqualification. But anyway, the, 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 this guy on Twitter, his name is, um, he goes by the handle Ed NL. Uh, I'm not sure whether he prefers Ed or Ted. I don't know he goes by what names. But anyway, he told me this really good story that uh, Gerben Carstens, he was known as a bit of a a joker, and in the Tour de France one year in the 70s he he said that carson's broke away from the peloton and was up the road on his own uh, on a solo breakaway and laugh he pulled over to the side of the road and hid and watched the peloton go by and then joined the back of the race and didn't say anything so the peloton were up the road wildly chasing this guy that wasn't even up the road anymore and and Carsons was just down the back of Peloton laughing to himself. I thought that was a great story and um does this there's this other story that that Ed said on Twitter which I'll, I I might leave till next week but I know you're going to find it absolutely hilarious. It's an unbelievable story involving Eddie Plankart I'll I'll do it next week. I but, uh Oh, I like a tease. We like a tease. It, yeah. it brings people back. Yeah, I'll definitely do that next week. But um there was another thing that that um I came across when reading into this uh World Championships that A won was that um, Eddie Merckx um, obviously he he had a big rivalry with, with Roger De Vlamming and they were on the same Belgian team so there was no love lost there but um it's it, one report I read was that uh, Walter Gottefruet was was on the team and yes. that him and Merckx kind of had an accord before the this World Championships that they would help each other and um that 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 was because in the Tour de France which was just ended a couple of weeks before um. Merckx didn't challenge Godefruit for the green jersey Walter Godefruit ended up winning the green jersey that tour, but he, I think he only won it by 3 or 4 points and it's suggested in a piece that Merckx let Godefruit win the green jersey which to me just seems very un-Merckxian you know, that that this insatiable hunger for winning everything, uh, he, he didn't try and win the green jersey and in 1969 Tour de France, Merckx won all the jerseys he won mountains, points and Obviously, the yellow jersey, and in 1970, he won the yellow jersey and the mountains jersey. So he would have won all three again had he not relinquished his challenge on the green jersey. So I might, I might look into that as well as to whether that's true or what actually happened there, because it just it, it seems something very much that Eddie Merckx wouldn't do. Um, and there was there was just one more thing that struck me when I was reading the report as well was this this British guy I'd never heard of. i just wondering what are you? You'd about
1: never him? heard of West? No, this is terrible. Well, I, I'm, hang your head in shame, man. <laughs> Actually, with the Tour de France coming to Yorkshire blah, next next year, um, it's amazing when people get so excited about that. And they should be. You know, The Yorkshire guys put on a, a great show with fireworks and everything this year. Um, but this World Championships was in Leicester. I mean, I've been to Leicester. How the hell did that get a World Championship?
0: <laughs> I don't but, know. A bit of nepotism, maybe the usual, huh?
1: Uh, but Les Weston, fourth... Um, was was a fantastic result and it just shows that you you know you can be inspired by the home soil.
0: Yeah and and like he was uh, you know like I said there was four guys that came to the to the finish um a good bit ahead of the the rest of the bunch and uh Master Ray broke away and Les Rest was in the in the sprint for the the medals and he was really you know it was obviously the most unfortunate position to come which is in fourth and he you know obviously um me, me looking at at a list of podium world championships hasn't brought him to my attention, so he's escaped my uh, my knowledge so far. But yeah, Les West fourth in the world championships.
1: It's funny, I mean, I, with the, the British obsession with uh, with testing, you know, with, with time trial. And Les West was a great time trialist. He also had a, a good record in the milk race, um, and he, he came back to the sport in in the two thousands and was dominant in kind of masters racing and won the uh, the league. Of, Veteran cyclists um, championship in two thousand and six, right. so I mean he's he's not he's not a Tommy Simpson or a you know a Chris Boardman or whatever, but he, he was certainly a, he was a, de- a decent rider for Britain uh, who rode hard over a very long period. But I mean, you're Irish, so you, you probably never noticed them. That's, I'm, it's, it's a bias. I'm telling you, it's the way you slip Ireland in. I mean, I, I, I saw this week that there were no Irish bits, and you still managed to get the Ross into the conversation. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I, I, maybe maybe I'll focus on, on British people a bit more just to appease the Bang fans.
1: Anyway, we're moving on to uh, oh, you're on a you're on a debunking role this week uh, because we're going to to another myth, which uh, quite, yeah, well,
0: it quite annoys you, doesn't it? In 2012, Ryder Hezjadal did not win the Giro d'Italia with the closest ever winning margin. Hezjadal became the first ever Canadian to win a Grand Tour when he beat current world number one, Joaquim Rodriguez. Hezjadal went into the final stage time trial with a 31-second deficit to the Spaniard, but over the course of the 28-kilometre test against the clock, Hesjedal proved strongest as he overhauled Rodriguez to win the Giro by just 16 seconds. But as was reported by some news outlets at the time, this was not the closest winning margin in the history of the Giro, nor was it the second closest, nor was it the third. It was the fourth closest winning margin in the race's history. Two of the previous closest Giri d'Italia ever were won by the same rider, Fiorenzo Magni. He won the closest ever edition in 1948, beating runner-up Ezio Cecchi by just 11 seconds. Magni repeated the trick in 1955, beating Fausto Coppi by just 13 seconds. The third edition of the Giro, which was closer run than last year's, was won by Eddie Merckx in 1974, by a rather unMerxian margin of 12 seconds over Gian Battista Baron Kelly. The third-place rider in the 1974 Giro, Felicia Giamondi, finished just 33 seconds behind Merckx, making it the second-closest Grand Tour podium ever, second only to the Tour de France of 2007. Although Hedgedal didn't set the closest winning margin ever last year, he did achieve a remarkable feat, he won a Grand Tour having never before won a stage race. He had never even finished on the podium of a stage race or worn a leader's jersey. The last rider before Hesgedal to win the Giro d'Italia having never before won a stage race was Franco Balmamion in 1962. Balmamion defended his Giro crown the following year and amazingly these were his only two stage race victories ever in a career which spanned 12 years. He won both races without winning a stage, and he remains the last Italian rider to win back-to-back editions of the Giro. But when Balmamion won his first Giro crown 50 years ago, he was 22 years old. Hesjedal won his when he was 31. In the intervening years between the maiden victories of Balmamion and Hesjedal of the other two Grand Tours, there have been just 12 riders who have won either the Tour or the Vuelta, having never before won a stage race. It has actually occurred three times in very recent times at the Tour with Carlos Sastre in 2008 and the two inherited wins of Andy Schleck and Oscar Pereiro. Prior to this at the Tour there was also Frenchman Lucien Aymar and Roger Pignon in the mid 60s. Unsurprisingly it is the Vuelta which has had the most stage race winning virgins take home the main prize including the likes of Roberto Heras, Marco Giovannetti and Alvaro Pino. Two things are notable when comparing Ryder Hesjedal to the others, who have achieved the same feat in the past 50 years. The first is that the Canadian is older than all of them were when they won their Grand Tour, apart from Ferdinand Brack, who was six months older when he won the 1971 Vuelta. The second item of note is that every one of the other riders had competition for team leadership. For instance, Sastra was contending with the Schleck brothers at Team CSC in 2008. Andy Schleck himself was sharing leadership duties with brother Frank in 2010. Pereiro started the 2006 tour at Case de Paran with Alejandro Valverde as leader. Giovannetti had Pino, Pino had Francisco Rodriguez, Jose Manuel Fuento had Miguel Maria Latha. It is perhaps unprecedented that a cyclist of Ryder Hesjedal's age was trusted with sole leadership and the full backing of a team for a Grand Tour, having never before proven himself a winner in stage races, and to pay back that trust with an overall win.
1: Watching Heshadel win this year was was one of my highlights, but again, we've got that, you know, a meme which suddenly becomes fact, and I can tell it annoys
0: you. Yeah, yeah, like, I mean, there wasn't, I think I only found one place where it actually said it was the closest year of all time, the, if, in in most of other places it said it was the second closest, but um, again, you know, it's just, not not fact checking, but um. Like you say, that that was that was definitely. I think it was my favorite race of 2012. And uh, I remember a couple of weeks ago, you, you sent out a Twitter. You were doing a, a yearly review thing with Scott on the main show, mm-hmm. and you asked for people's highlights. And the one I said was Thomas DeGent's Gents' uh, solo breakaway on uh, I think was it the second last stage. Yeah, or, and we thought we thought he might steal the whole race. Oh, it was brilliant! It was just gripping, you know, and and it was real real kind of throwback racing that uh, the the kind of which you wouldn't expect now with the with with power meters governing everybody's decisions and Thomas again just said, you know what, I'm giving this a giving this a go and, and you know, and he did crack, you know. He cracked with it with two or three kilometres to go if I remember rightly, but you mm-hmm. know, he had enough of a lead to keep on going and he, he it was just it was brilliant. It was it was um the, the only other ride like that in a grand tour that I can think of recently was Andy Schleck in the in the Tour de France in two thousand eleven when he attacked and, and also cracked. With a couple of kilometers to go, but still managed to to uh, take the yellow jersey. I mean, he didn't end up winning the tour, um, mm-hmm. but you know, th- those types of 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 uh, breakaways and rides—they're just fa- fantastic to watch. Just absolutely brilliant and absolutely the opposite of what we were we were faced with in this this year's Tour de France or last year's Tour de France. Just gone, and um, I uh, like I'm really excited about this year coming up. Um, you know, because well, for a vast number of reasons. Yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> but but I, I just think this year more than more than most in the last while. I don't know, maybe maybe I'm just saying this because it's this year and I've forgotten or whatever. But but you know, last year you had Ryze, Ryder Hesjedal emerging as a. You know, I don't think anybody had him pegged as a Grand Tour winner before that, except maybe Jonathan Waters. But but mm-hmm. you know, he emerged as a, as a Grand Tour. Contender, I think Joaqu- Joaquin Rodriguez really uh, m- matured into a Grand Tour contender. I I don't think anybody really took him too seriously before as a guy who could possibly win one. Then you had Bradley <laughs> Wiggins, obviously, uh, and Chris Froome, who, who um again weren't really in the picture for winning Grand Tours in-, in previous years. And and but last year we you know Contador um was suspended for most of the year. Andy Schleck was injured. Cadell Evans, it's now emerging, was was ill or or. Slightly injured or something. Anyway, he wasn't quite right. Then you have all these 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 young guys, like especially T.J. Van Garderen, and and you know it's just it, to me it just seems like a really really uh, interesting mix of people for the first time in a while. It's like a perfect storm of all, all these kind of elderly guys who are who are fit they're and still ready. good. Yeah, yeah they're still good. The young guys coming through, and this kind of I hesitate to call them a B list of 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 Grand Tour guys who. Uh, Aren't going to be too pleased with Schleck and Contador coming back and uh, you know t- taking over again. And I just think it's re- really fascinating. Um, it's going to be fascinating, and especially because um, you know there's so many names that are saying that they're going to ride the Giro rather than the yeah. Tour, which is which is brilliant. And you know, not not, not to take away from Hesjedal's victory in the Giro, but you know, maybe it wasn't the most stellar field in terms of big name Grand Tour riders. But um, you know, I think this year. You know, the, I, like I said, the Giro was one of the best. I think it was the best race last year, and it has the potential to be better this year with the mix of people that say they're going to do it. Like Wiggins is seems certain. Contador is considering it, uh, and um, the, you know, then you'll have the, the, the usual Italians. Like actually, Nabali has. I think he's. I don't think he's riding the Tour de France this year. You know, mm-hmm. so he's focused on the Giro. But I just think it's going to be brilliant. Um, and I think it's one of those years where we're going to have to learn some new names. You know, it's
1: one of those years of transition. Where we're, we're we're so used to the you know the the Schleck's, the Contador's, and whatever, and the way that we were used you know used to the Reeses and the Ulrichs and you know before that you know, the Enderains or or the Eno's, it's one of those years where I think some new names are going to come forward and we'll have to pay attention to them. You know, a, a real year for for youth pushing
0: through. Yeah, hopefully, yeah, and and it's funny you should say youth pushing through because you know obviously Ryder Hedgedal was was thirty one. You know, he's no spring chicken, and I just thought it was. Um, well, you know, it was unique or almost unprecedented. I said that um, you know a team and a team manager would put faith in in somebody who was this old, who had never proven himself, and um, it's just I I think obviously it was a masterstroke in the end because he he did it. But I mean, even if even if he hadn't have done it, you know, this isn't the first time John Vodis has done this. You, you know, for for a number of years in a row. Um, he had the kind of the surprise package of the Tour de France you know Christian van der Vel came fourth in 2008 Bradley Wiggins came fourth in, 2000 in 2009 um, I think that the following year maybe it was Hesedal himself maybe he came eighth and then you had uh, then then they put their faith in Tom Danielson last year which you know maybe he could have done a bit better than he did or was that the year before anyway I can't remember but, but they they had uh, you know they, they they have put their faith in guys repeatedly who, who um, maybe maybe on paper don't deserve the backing but mm-hmm. but they've done it anyway and you, you know it's a great policy I think and uh, you know um, well from an Irish point of view maybe maybe Daniel Martin will get the nod this year I'm not sure I, maybe he's still a little bit too um, unpre- unpredictable but uh, yeah I, I just think I just think he deserves a, a lot of plaudits for you know for, for setting his sights on this project of Hesedal winning the Giro you know it wasn't uh, and, and like I said as well you know this was the plan this was always the plan and it wasn't it wasn't like his main man got injured and they, they threw this guy in like you, you know like the way Finian won the, the 1983 tour or mm-hmm. um, I'm trying to think of another example um, I'm not, I, I can't think of another one but you know it, was, it wasn't it was an accident that, that all of a sudden Hezeda was thrust into this role this was the plan and for the plan to, to work like this and I think even I, I just read an article recently there um was an interview with Joaquin Rodriguez and he said um he was very honest and he said that he didn't give Hegedal enough credit and he didn't chase him down early on in the race because he didn't really consider him a, a threat and that he lost stupid time to Hegedal early in the race that he he obviously he didn't get back and that 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 was the reason that he lost and uh, you know i i i would say now that i you know i don't think Ryder hegedal is going to win another grand tour for that reason yeah He's, he's, he,
1: he wouldn't get the leeway that, that was crucial to his win this year yeah
0: absolutely yeah yeah it's, it's it, it was the foundation of, of what his victory was based on was the element of surprise as surprising as you can be over a race that lasts three weeks but but that's that's how he won it and yeah I, I, I don't think that's going to happen again so I wonder who I wonder who, uh, I wonder who John is going to throw his weight behind next to be interesting. Uh, I mean,
1: he he is a, a, a tactical genius, and but he relies on surprise. I think, and he, he almost cultivates, you know, that that plucky underdog image for his team, which I mean, they genuinely are in terms of budget. Yeah. But uh, they've clearly got their heads screwed on right. Now we were so long in the first section. I'm gonna I'm gonna push on to to one of the real heroes, of the the affair Armstrong, uh, and this is a piece about Christophe Basson. In 1999,
0: Christophe Basson won a stage of the Dauphiné Libéré. The Sport of Cycling was approaching its first Tour de France after the Festina Affair had grabbed all the headlines in the previous year's edition. The upcoming tour was dubbed the Tour of Renewal and was crying out for a clean champion to take the reins and drag the sport out of the mire it had dug itself into. As with any other year, many of the Tour de France contenders were finalising their preparations for the Tour at the week-long Dauphiné Libre in June. It was during this race that the highlight of Christophe Basson's career took place. Basson is known now for being a cyclist who refused to dope. He was part of the Festina team in 1998, but was known as Monsieur Propre by teammates such as Alex Zula and Richard Varoncq. He refused to submit to the team's organised doping practices and was openly mocked by his teammates for his admirable stance. Asked about joining the Festina team in 1996 and whether he knew that riders on the team were doping, Basson said the following in an interview with Bicycling Magazine. I knew right away what was happening. Everything was out in the open within the team. When I signed, I had a three-year contract. In the beginning, the the manager Bruno Roussel said, you're a young rider, so in the first couple of years, we prefer that you don't do any heavy doping with EPO or human growth hormone, but you can do lighter things such as cortisone. So from the start, I saw it. The doctor was always present, taking blood tests to see our hematocrit levels. And when asked if he took any banned substances himself, Bassant replied, No, nothing. I made it clear I wasn't interested in doping, not in the heavy stuff or the light stuff, and I think that actually comforted Bruno. But the thing was, each winter at the training camps, I had the best numbers, so they saw me as a potential Tour de France rider. However, I was clear with them that although I might have the physical capacity, mentally, I was not the kind of cyclist who could handle all the pressure. I preferred working for others. They understood that, but still the pressure increased. When it came time to renegotiate my contract in June 98, they proposed two entirely different contracts. The first was 30,000 francs a month. They also offered a second contract of 300,000 francs a month if I would go on the EPO programme. Basson took the 30,000 francs a month option. Subsequently, during the 1999 Tour de France, Basson maintained a column in the French newspaper Le Parisien, in which he openly spoke about the doping in the peloton. On stage 10 of the 1999 tour, the peloton literally ganged up on him. As a group, the peloton decided to ride slowly for the first half of the stage, but Basson defiantly decided to go on the attack. Eventually, the peloton closed him down and he was approached by Armstrong who was wearing the yellow jersey. Basson reports on what Armstrong said to him. He grabbed me by the shoulder because he knew that everyone would be watching and he knew that at that moment he could show everyone that he was the boss. He stopped me and he said what I was saying wasn't true. What I was saying was bad for cycling and that I mustn't say it, that I had no right to be a professional cyclist, that I should quit cycling, that I should quit the Tour, and he finished by saying, fuck you. I was depressed for six months, I was crying all of the time, I was in a really bad way. Under severe mental pressure, Basson eventually abandoned the Tour de France of 99 and stopped racing altogether in 2001, aged just 27. But on the final stage at the Dauphiné Libre in June of 1999, Basson, riding Paniagua, broke clear of the main group with 28 kilometres to the finish to add his name to the list of stage winners that year, which already included Jonathan Vaughters, Alexander Vinokurov, Laurent Debian and Laurent Madwa, all proven or confessed dopers. Perhaps the most poetic thing of all was that the rider who Basson beat into second place that day was Lance Armstrong. I'm really pleased you put that bit in because
1: there's this thing where Basson is, is now known only uh, for, you know... Armstrong putting his hand on his shoulder and and you know forcing him out of the tour. Whereas, in fact
0: he was a bloody cracking rider as well. Yeah, yeah and, and um I read an article there um recently as well. It was in, it was a recent interview with him and he was asked about all sorts of things but um you know he he was t- he was talking about you know pre-season uh you know fitness tests or power tests or you know whatever they do in the off season and that he was one of the the strongest riders on the team like the, the leaders of Festina at that time were Alex Zula and Richard Varonk, and he was, you know, he had better numbers than all of them. And yeah, uh, he he said he had a VO2 max of 85. And just to put that into context, Armstrong had a VO2 max. Well, these are all kind of reported. I don't know whether anybody knows for sure what somebody's VO2 max is, but reportedly Armstrong's was 83. Uh, say Miguel Indurain's was 88, and Greg Lemond's was was 93. That's just to put it into a bit of context. So Christophe Bassons had this VO2 max of 85. And uh, like that, that story of being offered two different contracts, two wildly different contracts for, for one if he if he went on the EPO program and one if he didn't. I mean, that th- that just kind of sums the whole era and attitude up of of the 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 organised doping that was going on in that era. It's
1: funny. I mean, it's funny because that actually fills in a hole in the story for me because I'd I'd heard the story about the two contracts, you know, with a, a tenfold difference in in value but i hadn't read about his his numbers and when you see that he has the numbers you know to be a potential contender in the biggest races you can see why they would be willing to invest in him uh, fueled up shall we say
0: yeah and and like to be fair to basson like he, he's he's not this this kind of preachy clean guy that maybe david miller has has morphed into in the last few years like he was very honest about the chances of him doping eventually and he said that you know if he well first of all, he said if he hadn't walked away he, he he was afraid of what he would have done and he even said that um uh, before I, I'm not sure whether it was before the Dauphiné or before the tour it was probably before the tour in between the two races in '98 that he he slept in oxygen tents and he said you know he was beginning to bend was the way he put it mm. and uh, he wasn't happy about it but he you know he, he said that um, he was a fragile character mentally. Uh, as funny as that sounds for somebody who's who was so strong-willed, but he said that he he didn't enjoy the pressure of being a team leader, and he was happy enough to uh to to be a domestique, mm-hmm. and and that that kind of coloured his his uh his attitude towards opening as well. He said, you know, well, I, I I'm not going to be trying to win races most often, so I, I you know. D- doping isn't for me for that reason also you know so he was quite honest about that he wasn't just no no doping is terrible he, you know there was kind of re- you know a couple of reasons why he why he decided not to do it but but yeah like you say he's become this the 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 image of M- mr clean of you know that, that was his name that they that they called him but he wasn't the only one i was reminded i i i sent a tweet last night um i actually I, i'll i'll read this quote to you as well um Sorry, wait till I find it here in the notes. Um, I can't find it. It's gone. <laughs> anyway, it said... um, it, it was a cycling news report of um, of that stage in the Dauphiné. And it, it, it was written, obviously, at the time. And it said uh, something like... Because uh, Alexander Vinokurov won the race overall. It was the final stage that Bastons won. So Bastons won the stage and Vinokurov won the overall. And it said, uh, like... Both Vinokurov and Bastons are part of a new generation of riders that provide a fresh image in the face of the doping scandals.
1: Oh, God.
0: You know, but, but like... That sounds from wheel, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. And, and so I put that quote on Twitter, and and uh, I got a couple of replies from uh, Matt Rendell and uh, Mr. Inner Ring, and they were quick to remind me that, that Christoph Bastons wasn't the only rider who, who was heralded to be clean on that Festina team. There was actually three, and it's, it's good to remind people that there was Laurent Lefebvre and Patrice Halgand as well, were also singled out, um, if you can single out three people. I don't, know, I don't think so. But anyway, it, um, as uh, clean clean riders on that dirty team. So, you know, I think Basson became uh, the poster boy for being clean because he was the one that was writing the column in the in the newspaper. And yep. obviously he, he became the, this public voice and the, he... he you know earned the scorn of of Lance Armstrong but um yeah you know I suppose that quote as well from the cycling news report you know that Finkurrov and bastons were equals in this fight against doping and you know like it it, it kind of if it, it if if you put that in the context of writers today uh, writers now that are saying you know you need to believe in this sport that we are all clean and we are clean and you know clean this clean that and you know it of course we want to believe that everybody's clean. And of course, if you haven't tested positive, we should you should get the benefit of the doubt. But you know, when when you look back at sentences like that, you know, how can we not both be cynical? And you know, you can't. But it's unfortunate for writers; they're in an impossible position. They can't prove they're clean. You know, you can't prove a negative. Yeah. And and that's really. I mean, I feel really sorry for them. You know, the the ones who genuinely are clean, and I don't know who they are. But that they can't prove that they are, and 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 that you know sentences like this can be can be printed and said, and they can can be completely wrong, and we have no way of knowing. And I do feel sorry for the writers, but I also, you know, I, I I kind of I don't think they help themselves in a lot of ways. Like Mark Cavendish. Oh, I uh, went off on one in Cavendish yesterday. Like he, he you know, I, I'm not sure whether we'll out curse on this. I really, it's explicit on iTunes. It's non-explicit on iTunes. So I won't curse, but he, you know, he he was repeated the F word telling people to get away from him while, when he was being asked questions about Lance Armstrong in an interview. Now, I, I mean, maybe, maybe I'm wrong here, but I like to me, a cyclist has two jobs, you know, he's a cyclist, but he's also, he's paid by sponsors, you know, sponsors pay his wages and he's the public face of of Omega Pharma now Omega Pharma Quickstep and you know if if I was if I was videotaped while I was doing my job and somebody else was doing their job in front of me you know I, like I'm just I'm, I'm a software developer sitting in my office all day like if I was to to if, if somebody came along to my desk and I in their face shouted you know F off F off repeatedly. repeatedly and I was videoed and my employer saw that you know I don't think I could be too upset if I was sacked no Actually,
1: that that actually that that quite annoyed me. What really annoyed me was when he he said yesterday, "Why do we have to pay for you know the sins of a bygone era?" And Armstrong is not part of a bygone era, you know. It, it, Cavendish was competing at the same time, and Armstrong. I mean, I thought it was two thousand and ten. You pointed out he was still racing in 2011. Yeah, time two thousand and
0: eleven. Yeah, two times two years hard,
1: ago, That's hardly a bygone era. And, you know, you also had, I I won so much, so I was the most tested uh, rider on the planet, Cavendish said. Oh,
0: God.
1: Now, where where, where have we heard that before? Now, I'm not saying he's dirty. I'm just saying they have to take on board the fact that we have been lied to so bloody often that they need to earn our trust. I've got none left. And when you see the same old lines being trotted out time and again, you know, you just despair for the future of the sport.
0: Yeah, and, and Cavendish wasn't the only one to kind of, uh, try and fob off that this was a bygone era, you know uh, um, Jens voice also, or Vox, or whatever way you want to pronounce it, he, he also said that this was you know, this was 15 years ago no, it wasn't 15 years ago, and uh, Bradley Wiggins said uh, oh yeah, so now we just write off the entire 1990s and move on, you know, the 1990s Wiggins, like what are you talking about Armstrong beat you to a podium place in the Tour de France in 2009 you know, how can you not how can he not um, be aware of that? You know <laughs> that, yeah, that he no, was. It's, it's it, astonishing. It, oh, it's exasperating, and and um, you know it, actually the, the, the just to give the flip side of of these exasperating reactions from riders, I think the 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 best example of a cyclist today that is eloquent and not, you know he's really he really gets at the heart of the issues, and I really really enjoy his his comments on Twitter. Is Taylor Finney. And I, I re- like I know he has a, a history. He, he was on the Livestrong uh, Trek under twenty three team, which was you know it was brainchild of Lance Armstrong or whatever. Mm-hmm. But you know I, I, I hope that doesn't cast too many aspersions on Taylor Finney. I, like you know obviously he can't prove that he's clean. I I really think that he is, and you know he was very quick to move away from Armstrong's. Team when when uh, it became as soon as he could basically as soon as he could yeah and and you know I've no doubt that he was offered a big contract with Radio Shack and he and he, and he said no and he moved to BMC and I you know obviously BMC have Jim Akowitz and and there's that whole thing there but anyway so Taylor, Taylor Finney said recently on Twitter um, that he he actually thanked the media he thanked them for uh, following up this story exposing Armstrong and all of the other cheats and for getting cycling into a cleaner position than it has been for for a while. Uh, and I, it was... Um, I think it was Laura Wiselove she's a cycling news journalist, she replied to him and said, thank you. You're, I think you are the first person... You are the first cyclist that has ever thanked the media like that in public. You know, and like I just think that speaks volumes as well. Like, you know, the, the media... The, the cyclists are very quick to jump down the media's throat and why are they focusing on doping, and why why this and that and the other? You know, that's their job, and you know, portraying an image of of clean cycling. It is, you know, I I don't know. I, I'm kind of getting wrapped up in my own thoughts here, but I just I really think. Um, the media have a job to do, and they didn't do it during the Armstrong era.
1: Yeah, but they're starting you to do it now. You can't criticise them for starting to do it now.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's exactly my point. Yeah, yeah, You can't criticise them for focusing on it now, and and lambast them for not focusing on it before. You can't have it both ways. And I think Taylor Finney is just an example of a guy who has the right attitude. And um, I, I just, yeah, I, I, I like him, you know. I,
1: no, me too. I mean, he was a brash kid. He's grown up into a, a, a brash adult, but he's uh, he's funny, and there's a genuine sense of integrity coming from him. Uh, so, I mean, I, I choose to trust him.
0: Yeah, me too as well. Something interesting, actually. Sorry, just to go back to the original piece that we were talking about. Was uh, that definitely Libre The, the list of, of stage winners. I don't know. It's kind of a, an interesting juxtaposition between you know clean and not, uh, and not uh, like the list of stage winners. Like you've got um, you know Jonathan Vauters uh uh Vinokurov, Lauren Debian and Lauren Madoin now they are are all admitted or uh proven dopers and on also on the list of stage winners you have Christophe Bassons, who we've talked about, and David Moncoutier who also won a stage who is also uh he 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 very much keeps himself to himself, but he's heralded as a as a writer who who was always clean he's retired now he retired last year. And, uh, but, but you know, I just it was interesting to have all those writers on the same list of stage winners. And, like, th- that was the addition of of the uh, the Dauphiné where Jonathan Waters won the time trial up Mont Ventoux. Yeah. And, uh, you, you know, I, I'm sure at the time everyone was like, oh, you know, possible possible American winner of the Tour de France. And uh, it obviously, like, Jonathan Waters was, was doped when he won that stage. He's admitted that. And I think he actually said on Twitter that he said he could have been seen from space he was so doped up on, on Mont Ventoux. <laughs> uh, at that at that time was the way he put it you know and and uh y- y- you have a guy like christophe bassans and, and david mancudi who are riding clean against these guys and winning and i just thought um it was uh just an interesting edition of the race to put into the context of doping and not doping but it, it, i i was just looking back over an old uh, edition of cycle sport magazine um which which was reporting on it was just the issue that came out after that dauphine libre and mm-hmm. uh, you know reporting on on Vodders time trial win and during that time John Voders maintained a column in Cycle Sport and I don't know whether you read this recently it got republished at Voders' request on the Cycle Sport website it was an article yeah called, I, read it, I read it quite it, recently yeah it was an article called Crossing the Line and it's one of the best things I've read about cycling and it, just for people who haven't who haven't read it I, I would highly recommend going out and, and, and finding and reading it but it was an article that Voders wrote and it was about and and bear in mind this was right after he could be seen from space he was so doped up that he he um he wrote it um, about a guy uh, uh, an amateur cyclist friend of his who was bemoaning the fact that um his races weren't on closed roads and that he constantly had to deal with the commissaires or, or the race organizers or whatever, telling him not to cross the line in the middle of the road because that's the rule. You can't you have to stay on the correct side of the road as you would if you were cycling normally. Yeah. And and that you you can't cross this line. And and the whole thing was that um the amateur cyclist was like, Well some people started doing it and gaining an advantage going around corners on descents, for instance. So, you know, some people started doing it. Then you know I'm gonna do it. And then all of a sudden everybody's doing it. And and th- you know, just the, the, the whole, the literal meaning of crossing the line, and the obviously the undertones of the doping that Waters meant when he meant crossing the line. And just at the end of the article, he said, um, he quoted the amateur cyclist, who I I don't know is real or not. He's probably not real. He quoted him and he said, um, you know, it must be great for you as a professional not to have to worry about that. And Waters just kind of said, yeah, really great, or or you know something to that effect. I just thought it was a marvelous piece of writing for John Waters to 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 hide this meaning in an article that was still about cycling and to have it published in a magazine. Now, I, 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 do, I, I didn't read it at the time. I'm not sure if you did, but I, I just I wonder how many people got the meaning. It's obvious now, of course, but I wonder whether it was obvious back then. I'm not sure.
1: Which brings us full circle to Armstrong because one of the uh, one of the quotes was that 2005 was the last time he crossed the line. Um, did you watch the interview? I, d- I did yeah I did,
0: um, yeah I think we'll leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, just just one thing that kind of struck me that I've never really thought about before. Nothing to do with the interview in, in particular, but like that, that Basson's inc- incident where where Armstrong grabbed him by the shoulder and kind of he was wearing the yellow jersey and he was speaking for the entire peloton and and you know he was the the figurehead of 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 uh, Omerta mm-hmm. like, basically at that time and. and Hounded Bassons out of the race. And I got to thinking like, you know what? Lance Armstrong was 26 when he when he did that, and like kind of thinking about me and my own life, and my own age. Like that's younger than I am now, and for him to have such gravity and power amongst cyclists that were, you know, 10 years older than him, some of them at that time, and for them to to not to not stick up for themselves or to to challenge him. You know he's only twenty six, and I was thinking back to what I was doing when I was twenty six. You know, yeah, you know, acting. Act, I mean, it wasn't that long ago, but I mean, you know, acting the Egypt in pubs and messing and you know having no real responsibility. You know, I've I've no I've no kids, I've no mortgage. I I you know I I don't, I, you know I I can kind only of, a small stable of horses to care for. Yeah, that's <laughs> it. Yeah, well, I didn't when I was twenty six, but like I I was I I was probably still in college actually. That's kind of tragic, isn't it? I was a, I spent a long time in college, but anyway, and but you know, Lance Armstrong at this age, and he was he was capable of of this vitriol and 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 power uh, wielding. It was just amazing to me. I'd never really thought of it before in terms of what age he was. I mean, obviously now he's, yeah, you know, he's forty one, is he or forty two? And you know, you kind of look at him as as a as obviously he's an elder statesman. But like at the time in nineteen ninety nine. You know, I was I was a teenager, and you know, just all of all sportsmen were adults to me. They were just adults, all of them. Didn't really didn't really strike me what age they were. But thinking back now, like, man, you know, for somebody that young to do what he did, it's just it's it's kind of mind blowing. Anyway, for me, because I'm I'm still close to that age, so I know
1: I I know exactly what you mean. I mean, I think, um, you know, there are so many bad sides to how he grew up. You know, the need for control that resulted from that. Um, it's it's a double-edged sword. You know, it's why he's a bastard and it's why he's a winner. Um, and I don't think the two are separable.
0: Yeah. Maybe, maybe just to put a positive spin on, just to finish off with, um, just going back to VO2 max uh, values. Uh, for some reason, I ended up coming across this article about... Uh, a guy who won the junior world time trial championships uh, last year in 2012. His name is Oscar Svensen. Uh, I, I, I'm actually I'm not sure whether he's Danish or Norwegian. I think he's Norwegian. And he he was he reportedly has a VO2 max of 97.5, which is apparently one of or the highest recorded in any cyclist. Now I know there's
1: many. I've, I've there's, never heard I've never heard of a cyclist with a VO2 max that no, high. No, no.
0: Th- I know there's many cyclists that don't reveal these kinds of Values which I can understand, but yeah, for ninety-seven point five. So anyway, so this guy is—I think he's eighteen—and uh, yeah, you know, ki- keep an eye out for him because he he, he could be—he could be incredible. VO two max of ninety-seven point five. That's like I think Greg is always heralded as the guy with the the biggest one as a cyclist with ninety-three. So uh, yeah, just one for the future and uh, and 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 Taylor Finney as well. I I, uh, I my I'll, I'll be keeping my eye on him this year. I hope he really does well in Paris Roubaix.
1: Well, good to end on a positive note. Um, That's been a a long show. I mean, you can tell we've been away for a couple of weeks uh, because you had loads bottled up to come out there. Where can people find you on the internet?
0: Um, I'm on Twitter at irishpeloton and uh, if you want to email me as well, it's just mail at irishpeloton.com.
1: And I'm W. John Galloway on Twitter and thanks for listening.